Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the fourth installment in my Superman movie review series. Today I am actually reviewing Supergirl. Yes, the 1984 film. This is your host, Corbin. And this is technically a part of the Superman universe starring Christopher Reeve. So after Superman 3, they decided to try and cash in and go with Supergirl. Now, if you want to know about the history of the film, how it came to be, why I'm not reviewing Superman 4 yet right now then that's all in your guide to supergirl which did come out last week that's the first link in the description below go ahead and listen to that first and then come back here and listen of course i reviewed all the christopher reeve superman movies and even a bonus review of superman and the moleman all of those are now available with guides to those as well those are all linked down below so make sure to check those out and of course timestamps are always down there if you're ready to just jump straight into the review you can do that all kinds of great content in the description below you're not going to want to miss and no matter where you're at make sure to click subscribe and leave us five stars that's a great free way to help us out so unlike the previous superman movies i have actually seen supergirl before i saw it on february 3rd of last year with my wife i said hey let's just watch something fun an 80s movie me and my wife love 80s movies And we had never seen Supergirl before, so we gave it a shot. I didn't really think that I was going to be necessarily reviewing it a little over a year later, but nevertheless, here I am. But the real question is, would the trailer have got me in theaters back in 1984? Well, we know based on my thoughts on the trailers for the previous films, my interest would have been waning in the Superman franchise, especially after Superman 3. Could the Supergirl really kind of revitalize it? and really expand the universe and be something different? Well, based on this trailer, no. I mean, this trailer looks incredibly goofy. I I was laughing through the trailer. It really looks like it's made for TV. It also gives away a lot of major plot points, but with very little explanation. I did think it was also kind of funny they promoted Mia Farrow being in the film, whereas once you watch the movie, you find out she's only in the first few minutes and she's never to be seen again. Now, there are multiple cuts of this movie. I am reviewing the international theatrical cut. That's the one that's easiest to get my hands on. It's on HBO Max. Uh, If you want to check out the director's cut, that is on Blu-ray. But the TV cut's not available. The U.S. theatrical cut is not even available at an hour and 45 minutes. I've heard it's nigh on incomprehensible. Um, So I'm guessing Mia Farrow shot more material for this. There's probably more in the director's cut. but None that I saw, but she's really not a big selling point in this movie, but they sure do try and make it that way in the trailer. So seeing this trailer, the bottom line is I would not go see this movie in theaters, fully knowing that that was probably going to be my only shot for a while since movie rental stores were beginning to come into their own. You could rent a VHS player. You could get a VHS of this despite it being incredibly expensive to purchase um, to rent, it was a little, little bit easier. So I probably would wait for the TV version, which 
as I talked about last week, was a heavily cut version of this film, probably for the best anyways. But nevertheless, no, I'm not in theaters in 1984. Well, we're ready for the 30 second plot summary. So if you don't want the film spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and check out the film and come back and click play here in the podcast and we'll be ready to talk about it. Kryptonians are alive in a miniature city at the bottom of a lake on planet Earth. Kara L, cousin of Superman, loses the power source to Argo City, thanks to Zoltar, played by Peter O'Toole. So she flies out to our world to recover it. The power source, aka the Omega Hedron, falls into the hands of a wannabe occultist Satanist named Selena, played by Faye Dunaway. Meanwhile, Supergirl goes undercover as Linda Lee at an all-girls school where she bunks with Lois Lane's sister, Lucy Lane, who is in love with Jimmy Olsen? Selena puts a love potion on local landscaper Ethan, but it misfires when he falls in love with Linda instead. Supergirl tries to stop Selena, but she is trapped in the Phantom Zone somehow. She easily escapes with Zoltar's help, although he perishes. In the real world, Selena has taken over Midvale while she resides atop her new mountain in her fortress. Supergirl dukes it out with her, ultimately fighting a giant dragon. Selena is defeated, and Supergirl returns the Omega Hedron to save Argo City. Yeah, that's that's the plot. It's as you can tell, it's utterly ridiculous, but that's not the first thing we see in this movie. The opening credits have always been a big selling point to the Superman franchise, particularly with the first film. The second film tried and in my estimation kind of failed to recreate it. The third was really strange and, and a failure of these opening credits. These are good. These opening credits are reminiscent of the first. They do feel a little more, you know, feminine, a little more energetic and lighthearted. Jerry Goldsmith's opening theme is very well done. I'm actually feeling optimistic about the opening of this film. But that optimism is quickly dashed when you come to find out there are Kryptonians that survived somehow, even though the council told Jor-El if him and his family tried to leave, they would be exiled to the Phantom Zone. Well, clearly some of them did leave, and they went to go live in inner space. Peter O'Toole has this whole big spiel about outer space and inner space. They're in inner space, which we at least know resides at the bottom of some kind of lake near Midvale, USA, wherever that is. And it's called Argo City. It's never explained. This is a weird fantasy opening really nothing to do with Superman. It doesn't even look like Krypton. It looks like these kind of hippies from some knockoff Middle Earth that are, I mean, Peter O'Toole is pretty bad in this. His name is Zoltar, first of all, which is not a Kryptonian name that I would think of being a Kryptonian name. It, It really does sound like something from Kroll. It's a weird fantasy opening. The whole opening is pretty bad. And it rests upon her finding some silly MacGuffin because the MacGuffin just flies out into flies out of Argo city, lands in the soup of the evil lady that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. And then Kara, you know, heads up to earth. And I guess anybody that heads up to earth gets, you know, to the surface, gets their own super suit and gets their own superpowers. It seems like, and of course we have this hilarious, you know, Mia Farrow line, um, without the Omega Hedron, that is what this little ball is called, then the lights will grow dim and the air so cold. Right off the bat, we know this movie is A, highly pretentious, and B, the writing is going to be awful. 
So just prepare yourselves for that, listeners, when you go into this movie. But returning to the positives, I'm trying to find some things to begin with that I can find some enjoyment in with this movie and think, oh, this isn't too bad. Peter Cook, he plays the sub-villain, I guess you could call him, Nigel. He's kind of this fun, sniveling English villain. He doesn't, unfortunately, get to do a lot in this movie, and his character is highly confusing because he's apparently a rich occultist school teacher at this all-girls school, I guess. Anyways, he he does a pretty good job. And even Helen Slater, this is her, she's a brand new actress, it's her first movie. She gives a bright-eyed, innocent performance. It's not great, it's not entirely compelling, but there is kind of this, you know, attractive innocence to her and strength that she portrays. I, I think she does a decent job. There's also a bit of comedy to be found in this movie, which is something that I think is been throughout the entire trilogy so far in various forms, whereas we know the last film tried to just be a straight comedy. Um, there's fun things like the two girls. Uh, there's a big thing with L's. There's Linda. I can't even keep track of them. You know, there's Lois Lane, Linda Lee, Lucy Lane, and Lana Lang, if I'm not mistaken. Um, all these girls get their names mixed up. Of course, Lana Lang is in Superman 3, not in this film. Um, there's a hilarious joke where Selena says, where there's a knock at her door, and she says, it better not be those gosh darn Jehovah's Witnesses again. Of course, she doesn't say gosh darn. But I don't know where in the world that Jehovah's Witness, you know, line dropped in, but I thought it was pretty funny. There's also a ton, and I'm not even kidding here, a ton of product placement particularly of A&W and Popeyes. And I don't think A&W would have been too happy that there is a rapist in this movie <laughs> wearing an A&W shirt, which I don't even, doesn't even make sense to me. I'm, he's a truck driver. Maybe he's a truck driver for A&W, but it's just a bad look. It's really ridiculous. I got to say, though, my two favorite characters in this are Faye Dunaway and Brenda Vaccaro. They're pretty funny, especially Brenda Vaccaro does a, a pretty good job of being kind of this, you know, ditzy uh, henchwoman, you could say. One thing this movie does that will probably surprise a lot of viewers is it goes to the Phantom Zone. Now, in the first film, you think the Phantom Zone is just this kind of horrific, two-dimensional, really squished plane of existence, whereas this looks more like it's something you'd find out of Greek mythology. It's like more so the underworld, more so than anything. Uh, but nevertheless, it provides a different aesthetic that is really contrasts with the rest of this movie because a lot of this movie takes place in daylight and it's just, you know, a sunny sky, it's bright, it's fun, uh, except for the Phantom Zone. And of course, Peter O'Toole's down there and he's gone insane after being in there for a few days. I guess he has a weak constitution. I don't know. Um, Zoltar does perish. I guess we're supposed to feel something about that, but I never do. You will be able to tell that this movie is chopped up somewhat because Selena all of a sudden becomes ruler of Midvale and she transports a mountain to her abode and she puts a fortress on top and she has these black, you know, jackbooted thug policemen just come out of nowhere. I'm not even sure if they're real people and they're there to keep everybody in check and they're already organizing uh, protests against her rule. It really does come out of nowhere, but it's pretty funny nonetheless. 
Unfortunately, the screenplay for this movie is probably the worst of all four Superman movies that I've reviewed. It's highly contrived. Kara says she's Superman's cousin, which is shocking that he had family that lived. That familiar relationship is never explained. Um, the Omega Hedron easily flies away, perfectly lands towards the villain. Um, the She goes to a school where the bad guy is one of her teachers. That never really comes into any sort of context, at least in the international cut, it doesn't. Uh, there's no explanation to this whatsoever. Uh, Linda just so happens to be roommates with Lois Lane's sister. I guess they must live close enough to Metropolis because... Um, yeah, I mean, can you believe it? She's roommates with Lois Lane's sister. It's, it's beyond belief. And of course, if I haven't mentioned it already, Superman is not in this movie because Christopher Reeve was getting tired of the role, first of all, and he just didn't want to make a cameo in this movie. So on the radio in the beginning, they say that he has flown off, you know, light years away on a peacekeeping mission. I'm curious to know how that will play into Superman for the quest for peace. I have no idea right now. But one thing that will probably bug a lot of people is the flying effects have not improved. Now, we know the budget for these movies is like going down each time, which makes sense to me because there's just diminishing box office returns. But the flying effects are awful. It completely takes me out of the movie to just watch her, you know in front of a screen while there's this helicopter footage of horses running in a field and she's just flying over there. Um, it's been what six years at this point, six, seven years since the first Superman came out. And the fact that they haven't even improved these visual effects is pretty disappointing. Visual effects are truly awful in this one the movie also doesn't follow its own rules. For instance, the love potion that Ethan, you know, falls under he walks through the town, I guess something goes wrong with his vision, because he looks at a ton of people, male and female included, he doesn't fall in love with any of them until his sight is miraculously restored when Supergirl helps him out, and of course he falls in love with her. Of course, this love interest is utterly ridiculous. This movie is really, really creepy for a couple reasons. First of all, because we're to assume Linda Lee or Supergirl, whatever, She's supposed to be school age, like grade school age, high school, and Lois Lane's sister, Lucy, is also in high school with her. But Jimmy Olsen, who I'm assuming has to be an adult, and he's looking pretty old by this movie, is making out with her. So, I mean, I don't know why Lois is okay with her coworker dating her high school sister, it's really strange, and this love story has no chemistry whatsoever. It's utterly goofy to watch this, you know, landscaper guy quoting poetry and just falling all over himself for her. And of course, this love potion thing sets off this Rube Goldberg-type disaster, which is kind of becoming a staple throughout the franchise at this point. It's just a way of having a big quote-unquote action set piece in the middle of the movie so we can watch, watch Midvale get destroyed. It's really ridiculous and silly. Um, I found it to be pretty hilarious, actually, for a number of different reasons, um, particularly because Brenda Vaccaro's character thinks Supergirl is a storm dragon. I mean, we do get a storm dragon later, I suppose, but they may have cut that out of context. It's crazy. 
there's also a lot of children's logic to this movie, and I get it. This movie is probably trying to appeal to a much younger audience, to teenagers, maybe young girls as well. There's just a lot of calling out things, like when Supergirl tells Selena at the end, you have no friends, you treat people badly. Well, yeah, that's pretty obvious. You really didn't need to just tell that to her face. It's it's pretty silly. One of the things that I'm truly shocked they went there with this movie is how much it leans into the occultic aspects, especially this like goat-headed Satan statue and the pentagrams we get throughout this movie. I have a hard time seeing how mainstream, you know, evangelical Americans at the time really would have been okay with this. And that could have been a reason why this movie was... In fact, I'm going to say it now. I bet that was a major reason why this movie was hurt. Because families don't want to go take their kids to go see a movie where there's a lot of occultic practices and satanic statues and maybe even the manifestation of Satan himself in the form of this dragon here at the end. It's utterly bizarre. It's utterly out of place um, because, first of all, this movie wants to be fantasy. Then it wants to be occultic magic type stuff. And then it also tries to be somewhat of a superhero movie, whatever that means to these producers at this point. Of course, kind of coming back to the big twist is that Argo City is in a lake because when Supergirl travels seemingly through space, she's maybe traveling through inner space and then she comes flying out of a lake. This is just utterly bizarre. I think it's a hokey plot twist. It really doesn't make any sense. And I, I think they are trying to be clever and it doesn't happen whatsoever. Also, the villain lives in an abandoned haunted carnival house. Another bizarre choice. Um, one thing I don't like about a lot of these 80s movies is they always have like the innocent girl introduced where she stumbles into a bad part of town somehow or she comes to the city and it's a bad part of town and the first people she encounters want to rape her. It is a bizarre introduction for characters. I don't understand the motivation behind it, but it, it is in a number of 80s movies that I've seen. It's really strange. Also, Linda's powers are stupid. Maybe they appeal to young girls, not to me. She has the ability to shift her wardrobe and hair color whenever she wants to. Um, I can definitely see that being a something exciting maybe a young girl would want to do. This movie also overstays its welcome. I mean, I'd be curious to see a shorter cut of the film, but in its two-hour form, including credits at the end, I think this movie is just too long. Um, there's 45 minutes left in a movie when they finally have their showdown, and that's just the precursor showdown. This is before she goes to the Phantom Zone, and then she fights this invisible dragon, and there's a lot that builds up and happens, like, really is backloaded onto this movie and just kind of dumps out here at the end. I've had my fill. I thought this movie is kind of hilarious at this point, but two hours is just too long. It really does overstay its welcome, and that's the one thing I'm going to note right now. Superman 4 next week clocks in at a slim 90 minutes. For some reason, they've always felt like they had to make these movies kind of these long epics. And for this one, it's just not necessary. Now, one of the things I found to be most bizarre about this movie, it's right here at the end, is it ends with her fighting a dragon and Selena does some weird voodoo to stretch, literally stretch Supergirl's body until Zoltar, who pulls an Obi-Wan Kenobi and tells her through some 
spirit realm that she can do it. She can overcome. And she does. She defeats the dragon and turns it on Selena somehow, thanks to the help of Nigel's advice, which Nigel is a bad guy in this. I don't really appreciate that he's exonerated and there's no consequences for him. But I don't think anybody would have expected Supergirl fighting a dragon at the end of this movie. Now, this is coming out in the 80s. It came out the same year as NeverEnding Story. There's Kroll. There is Legend. There's a ton of fantasy movies from the 80s. So I really think they're trying to tap into that. But it's just completely out of place. Of course, she recovers the... I keep wanting to call it the Argonath. That is from Lord of the Rings, the Omega Hedron for Argo City. She recovers that and takes it back there, which we've completely forgotten about because these people are supposed to be like on a lifeline. They're supposed to be dying without their power source, which makes sense. But the movie never cuts back to them. At least this cut, it doesn't. The most widely available cut. Um, but we get to see the lights come back on and the credits start rolling. So we suppose all's well that ends well. It doesn't really explain except for maybe she just wants to be with her parents. It doesn't explain. I mean, this this place looks pretty dang boring to me, but it doesn't explain why she can't go back and still be friends with Lucy and go fall in love with Ethan because there's clearly some romantic feelings there. As with as with everything in this film, it's just left unexplained. Supergirl is utterly ridiculous on every level. The fact this got made shows anyone can write a screenplay or make a movie, no matter how good or bad it is. The one thing that sets this apart from Superman's previous three outings is that this is so bad, it's good. I'm pulled in by how goofy this movie is. Supergirl's adventures are completely over the top, and looking at it nearly 40 years later, I'm able to have fun watching it. Supergirl receives 5 stars out of 10 with a mild not recommend. So while I can't actually really recommend this movie to everyone, I can recommend it to those who enjoy a cheesy 80s movie. Now, as far as my original rating goes last year, I did drop it from a six to a five. So it doesn't really hold up as well on repeat viewings. It's one of those movies where once you watch it once, you've got your fill, maybe just maybe you can return to it in the future. But I will link to my original review below if you're curious to read it. It's a short written review over on Letterboxd. But nevertheless, I liked it a little bit more on my first outing. Would I add this one to my collection, though? That's the question. Is this a pickup or pass? You know, I would add this one to my collection for the right price. Since I own all of the Reeve films, I own... The 2006 Superman movie, Own Man of Steel. Yeah, I this is kind of one. I'm more of a preservationist. I don't call myself a completionist, but just to have that in the collection, which would give me access to the director's cut, which I'm very curious about. I would definitely add this one. I'm not going to go out and spend 20 bucks on it right now, though. It's really got to come down in price. Well, the other movie recommendations I have for you after this one, I was thinking a lot about Conan the Destroyer, especially with kind of this evil sorceress and this monster here at the end and we kind of got this princess and whatnot um it's a very much a pg successor to the decently r-rated original conan the barbarian conan the destroyer i still really enjoy i think it's uh, got its place there i'm also going to be recommending close encounters of the third kind i can't even tell you how badly this movie wants to be that in so many different areas um particularly this kind of devil's mountain 
at the very end. Uh, this movie, Supergirl rips off a lot of stuff, Close Encounters. I'm also thinking, um, whatever that one is called from Fantasia, um, Bald Knight on Witch Mountain, uh, which is horrifying but incredible uh, there's just so much here that it's ripping off and i'm ultimately going to be recommending kroll i've mentioned it before kroll is star wars but fantasy i've got it on blu-ray i highly enjoy it it's one that i'm looking forward to returning to it is straight up what if we took star wars and we just dressed it up like lord of the rings so definitely check kroll out which kroll had actually just come out the year prior to this movie well, it should come as no surprise, especially if you listen to your guide for Supergirl. Nobody really liked this movie, and it did horrible at the box office. It just crashed and burned. It didn't make any of its money back, really. Uh, it was a huge disappointment. So, as I noted, Helen, Helen Slater was signed on for two films. Um, they really thought they were going to make this a new trilogy. It never happened, and she does not return for Superman 4, so this really just nixed any possible chances of a Supergirl franchise. It would be two years and seven months later when Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, came out. Two and a half years is a long time. Clearly, they had to do a lot of soul-searching. They had to figure out how to get Reeve back on board, and they really had to figure out how to revamp the franchise because at this point it was essentially in the toilet and the time gap between superman 3 and 4 was over four years so it was a really long time for audiences to get this and i'm gonna save i'm gonna save him for info for superman 4 next week i have not seen it but i just know it's not gonna end well well, this wasn't actually Helen Slater's last participation in a Supergirl project. She does actually play Supergirl's earthly mother in the popular CW TV series, which listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it has come to an end. It just ended last year. It had 126 episodes. Helen Slater was um, the mom, which I found to be very interesting. I haven't seen this show at all. It didn't interest me and I had a lot of other things going on in my life but I am going to try and give the first episode a watch before I come back for Superman 4 for my review next week well listeners the question after the show is Supergirl so bad it's good you know my opinion yes it is but I'm very curious to know yours so make sure no matter where you're listening comment subscribe let me know I want to know listeners what do you think is it so bad it's good all right listeners thank you for coming along with me on my review of Supergirl it's been an uh it's been an interesting excursion but I knew this movie took place between three and four so I had to see what did the Sulkins cook up and try to boot up and it ultimately failed and now we know well, listeners, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and come back next week because I am going to be finishing at least the Reeve section of the series with Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, 
If you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. I mean, I'd be curious to see a shorter cut of the film, but in its... There's a plane. There it is. Ooh, flight path.